Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses 7 through 10. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and your eye look grudgingly on your brother and you give him nothing and he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. was, uh, as Jacob mentioned, we've got our second annual Religion and Politics Sunday uh, today. Last year, uh, it was an election year, so we uh, we talked, asked, who would Jesus vote for? Um, yeah, very fun question. Um, and we didn't, we didn't really answer it directly. We talked kind of about the cr- Christian political personality, um, not so much the positions that should characterize uh, Christian politically, but the, the dispositions. And so uh, we had so much fun last year. Everybody had such a great time that we decided to do it again, make it an annual tradition. The first uh, Sunday of November, we've got the mayoral election coming up. It's a good time for it every year. Uh, and this year, we're asking a more specific issues-based question, which is um, related. The, the title of the sermon is Helping the Poor and related to this, this major political problem of inequality and disparity, which is always in front of us. Um, especially recently, you know, from Occupy Wall Street a while back to now, this the, the budget crisis obviously has a lot to do with how are we going to take care of the poor. So that's what we're talking about this morning. Um, I've got three points, three propositions for you uh, that will make up the three sections of this morning's message. First, helping the poor is non-optional. Second, helping the poor is complicated. And third, helping the poor is secondary. Helping the poor is non-optional. Helping the poor is complicated. And helping the poor is secondary. So first, helping the poor is non-optional. And by that statement, I just mean what you think I mean, which is that the Bible is very clear. Uh, Those who have more must, must share with those who have less. So hopefully that's self-evident to everybody here. Um, But the reason I have to make this the first point in the sermon is because there is this idea out there that uh, there there is no obligation on the part of the rich or on on the part of the middle class to to help the poor. Um, That just because that person or that family is struggling, that that doesn't create any obligation on my part. And the only way that makes any sense at all is if you you assume that basically everybody's kind of born on an even playing field, and um, what you have is the result of how hard you've worked, and everybody basically gets what they deserve in life. So I've worked hard, and I've got a lot. That person hasn't worked hard. They don't have much, um, and that's not my problem. And uh, you see this you see this moral in um, children's stories. So uh, we have a book on our shelf, The the Little Red Hen. I'm not sure where it came from, gift or something. Um, but it's, about the, it's, a, it's actually a retelling of this old fable, old folktale, and it's about this hen who uh, 
finds some wheat, and she goes and asks all the other barnyard animals, hey, will you help me plant uh, the wheat? And they they're all say, they say, no, you know, we don't want to do that right now. We'd rather lay around in the sun or whatever barnyard animals do. Um, and so she goes and does it by herself. Same thing for the harvesting. Hey, who wants to help me harvest? No, everybody's, everybody just wants to hang out. Nobody wants to do the hard work and help her harvest. Same thing with the milling the flour. Same thing with the, the making the, the dough and then baking the bread. And then she says, you know, after it's all over, um, hey, who would like to help me come and eat this bread? And everybody's, oh, I would, you know, the pig wants to, the, the cow wants to, everybody wants to come help her eat the bread. So she gathers them around and says, suckers, I'm not going to let any of you have any of this because none of you helped me. I'm not going to share the bread at all. I'm going to eat it all myself, which apparently why the, the hen is so fat in the story. Um, but th- that's not the point. The point is this, uh, this moral that if you don't work for it, you don't deserve any of the, the rewards. And that's fine. That's fine as far as it goes. I mean, that is a good lesson for children to, to be inculcated with, and, and there is some truth to it. What The problem is when this becomes a worldview that says, well, if I have, it's probably because I, I deserve it, because I've worked hard for it. And if that person doesn't have, it's probably because they, they don't deserve it, and they haven't worked hard for it. And the, the reason I use a, a children's story to illustrate that worldview is because it's, it's a very childish worldview. It's a very simplistic worldview. Because if you've, if you've got more than an IQ of 80, and you think about it for more than two minutes, what you realize is that it's not an even playing field at all. And that what you end up having in the end has a lot more to do with what you're given to start out than it does with how hard you work. And you say, well, I mean, people all the time, you know, uh, rise up from nothing and make a lot of themselves. Like, well, what about Abraham Lincoln? Yeah, that did happen to Abraham Lincoln, and we're still talking about it. 150 years later, and we still haven't gotten over it. We're still talking about that this guy did this. Why? Because it hardly ever happens. And so the fact that it happened to this guy, we're mesmerized by it. We can't figure out why. Why did it happen? What happened with him? He was a freak. He was an absolute freak. He's one of the strangest human beings that's ever been born on planet Earth. He's one in a million. And so you can't exactly make a model out of him. Just because it happened to him, that's not how it usually happens. You know, Margaret Thatcher would would sometimes act like, well, you know, I, I rose up from being a grocer's daughter, so why can't everybody? Well, because, Margaret Thatcher, not everybody is the most gifted individual in their entire generation. If you're one in a million, that's one thing. But for most people, for most people, what you end up having and the station you end up reaching has far more to do with what you start out with than it does with how far you, how hard you work. And because of that, then the Bible is very clear that there is this moral obligation of those who have more to share with those who have less. It's only fair. You have to do it. Take a look at it. The Bible talks about this over and over again. It's, it's probably one of the most repeated commands in all of Scripture. Let me show you one example here in, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15. God says, if among you, this is what, uh, Jason just read this a second ago. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought 
in your heart, and your eye look grudgingly on your brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. And I, I love that you know, God knows human beings. He made us. And he understands us better than, he understand, than we understand ourselves. And so it's not, you notice in that passage, it's not just a guilt trip. He doesn't just talk about the moral obligation. He also talks about this self-interested reason for doing it. He says, if you do this, I'll reward you. I'll take care of you. I'll make sure you have enough. Which means the implication of that is there's nothing wrong with having more than somebody else. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. You don't need to feel guilty because you got a better deal than they did. That's, that, that doesn't help anybody. He's not saying that. He's not saying go around feeling guilty if you're better off. He's saying just give. Give. Give a lot. Give freely. And if you do, I'll take care of you. But if you don't, how dare you? How dare you think that you have a lot because you deserve it? And they don't have very much because they don't deserve it. That's just not how it works. What is a poor person? A poor person is somebody who doesn't have anything that the world is willing to pay for. And that doesn't happen because of their own fault. You know, a guy, you, as you reach the age of mature, maturity, 18, 19, 20 years old, and you look and you realize you don't, you don't have much. You are, you're, born into, you're born to a, a drug addict, single mom. Uh, you don't receive nurture and support growing up. You don't learn uh, very much about how to read or write. You join a gang because it's the only place you can find stability and a sense of community and belonging. And you're, you're, then you're standing there at 18, 19, 20 with very little education, very little job skills, no understanding of uh, how to build relationships, no understanding of delayed gratification. You just you don't have anything to offer. You don't have anything that the world is willing to pay for. And whose fault is that? We say, well, that, well, that person made some bad decisions. Yeah, as a seven-year-old, seven-year-olds can be so stupid. Jeez. I mean, it's not that person's fault. It's not that person's fault. That person got a raw deal every bit as much as you got a good deal. And that means that it is only fair. It is morally obligatory that you share out of your plenty with those who have less. That's the Bible's position. That's the first point of the sermon. Uh, helping the poor is non-optional. So the, the second point now is uh, helping the poor is first non-optional, second it's complicated. And so far if you're a Democrat you're thinking, alright, this has been a great sermon. I knew it. All Christians should be Democrats. It's what, as I've always suspected. Um, so you're not, you're not going to like what's coming up because uh, the, f- the first point we did hit on a lot of uh, liberal talking points, but in this, this second point we're going to hit on some conservative talking points. And what conservatives are very good about pointing out in all areas, including this one, is, well, it's, it's not exactly that simple. You know, it's not as simple as it first appears. And that's certainly true here with helping the poor. It's not as simple as it first appears. Um, so there's two complications in this section I want to mention in particular. We could talk about, you know, there's myriad complications why um, helping the poor is difficult, but there's uh, two I want to mention here, and I'm choosing these two because either there are uh, two that the Bible happens to talk about. So the first complication, the first 
reason it's tricky to help the poor, the first thing that makes it hard is uh, this danger of creating disincentives, this danger of creating disincentives. And you, you all know all this already, I know that, but just to spell it out so we're all on the same page, how this works is, um, in, in the natural order, you have to work hard in order to eat. That's just how the world works. In an ideal society, everybody would work hard and everybody would eat. Um, so when you, when you help the poor, when you offer food for free, um, what's, what's tricky about that is you're, you're, sever- you're, you're messing with the natural order, you're intervening, and you're severing this connection that exists between uh, work on the one hand and the rewards of work, the material rewards of work on the other hand. And what can happen is, you know, so whatever it is, uh, let's, it's a, if it's a food stamps on the federal level, on a government level, or if it's a food pantry on a private level. Either, in either case, it's the same thing. You're, you're giving out food for free. And now a person doesn't have to work to get food. They can just ask for food. And if, that is, if, there's no lim- if there are no limits set on that, then a person can continually get food without working. Or if they are allowed to have free housing without working, they continually get free housing without working. And there is this temptation to say, uh, well, you know, why work then? And you say, well, now it sounds like you're back to accusing the poor of being lazy. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I should clarify something. Um, I, I never said the poor weren't lazy. I said that laziness wasn't the cause of their poverty. They're, they're poor because they got a bad deal. But that doesn't mean they're not lazy. Of course they're lazy. Everybody's lazy. Rich, poor, middle class, we're all lazy if given the opportunity to be lazy. And the, the main tool we have against laziness, the main safeguard we have against laziness is this thing called hunger. So if look at Proverbs 28. This is this, uh, or no, sorry, Proverbs 16. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. It's a remarkable verse. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. And the Bible is so realistic about human nature. It says nobody feels like getting up and going to work every day. Nobody wants to do that. But if you have to put food on the table, somehow you will find a way. If you have to pay the bills, sometime, somehow you'll find a way. Your hunger urges you on. And when you take away that hunger artificially by supplying for somebody's needs without working, then there's a problem. There's a potential problem, at least. But why work? Why work anymore? Um, this, embarrassingly, was something that happened in one of the first Christian churches. Uh, this was the church at Thessalonica. It was a church that Paul had founded. And you, you may know, hopefully you know, that historically, one of the things that the earliest Christian churches were known for, one of their distinctives, was this radical generosity. So they, they put into practice the first point about uh, giving to the poor is, is non-optional. They just were radically generous. It says in Acts that nobody had a need among them. that They shared everything. Um, but over time, problems developed. So there's, you know, it, what would happen is, you know, you'd have somebody that is out of work, and so they're, they're receiving aid from the church. But then after a while, it's like, well, the, you know, the aid keeps rolling in, um, and why would I want to go get a job again? I mean, this really isn't that bad of a situation. And so Paul has to, to write to the church at Thessalonica and say, no, 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 that's not how it's supposed to work. Let me read you this, this famous passage from Second Thessalonians. This is his letter that he writes to them. And he says, Now we command you, brothers, 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and wasting time meddling in other people's business. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we appeal to such people. No, we command them, settle down and get to work. Earn your own living. Paul realizes it's complicated. It's complicated to help the poor. And you have this command to share freely with those that don't have. But then Paul says, well, wait a minute. That doesn't mean that people can stop working. It's complicated. And one of the main complications, this first one, is that there's a potential for creating disincentives. But I said there's two that I wanted to talk about. So the, the, the second one, the second complication in helping the poor. First, the, the uh, danger of creating disincentives. Secondly, it's, it can be difficult to separate those who really need help from those who don't. So once there's this money that's set aside for the poor and earmarked, um, it's amazing how many people all of a sudden will say, well, hey, I'm poor, I think. You know, I, I would like to get in on that. Um, and then it's a full-time job trying to figure out who needs the help and who doesn't need the help? Same thing, uh, first Christian churches face this exact same problem. Um, Timothy was this uh, younger minister. He was a protege of Paul, and Paul had installed him as the head pastor at the church of Ephesus. And, um, you know, so he's inexperienced, and apparently um, the, the women at the church in Ephesus were having a field day with poor little Timothy, um, because they, they had made this rule in the church in that day, all widows get aid. Um, you know, they were trying to figure out who are the people that really need help. Widows need help. But like all rules, like all generalizations, it's, it's going to miss in some areas. It's going to not get some people that need help, and it's going to include some people that don't need help. And so basically every woman that, that uh, you know, could look like a widow, could pass for a widow, was, you know, everybody was coming out of the woodwork and saying, oh, I, I'm a widow, and Timothy was kind of a sucker. And uh, all of a sudden the widow role was huge at his church, and it was breaking the bank. So Paul writes to him, and it's this letter that survived. It's in the New Testament, it's 1 Timothy. He says, Timothy, you got to get this under control. And he, he goes on. For, I, I love that this is in the Bible. It's this long section where he lays out all of his rules of thumb for how to keep the list of widows shorter so you don't have to give out as much aid. So he says, for one thing, you know, if they're gossip, you know, out. They're not on the list. Take them off. Um, he says they have to have a reputation for community service. They have to have a reputation for, for being a godly person. If they're under 60 years old, off the list. If they have kids that are making money somewhere, off the list. Go find the deadbeat son and tell him to pay up. It's his job. And it goes on like this. And this is in the Bible. I love that this is in the Bible because what it shows is, at first it seems uncaring and cold and heartless, but what it shows is helping the poor is complicated. It's very complicated. And if you're not willing to get into the nitty-gritty and be very tough-minded about how you go about it, you're going to end up doing more harm than good. You're you have to, the, the first point is you have to have, be big-hearted, but the second point is you have to be tough-minded. And, you know, so to address the specific question now, before we move on to the third point in the final section of how does this work out, you know, politically? Um, I don't know. 
I, I don't know. And I, I know you knew I was going to say that, and I feel bad to disappoint you in that way. Um, but the, the point of giving you both of these sides is to say that there's actually support for both positions in Scripture. So if your position as a Christian is, um, you know, helping the poor is so important, it's made such a big deal of in the Bible, and it's this moral obligation, and the poor didn't do anything to deserve to be poor, and we have to help them. It's so important that it should be part of the, the laws of the land. It should be part of the taxation structure. If that's your position, I think that you have support in Scripture. On the other hand, if your position is helping the poor is so complicated that it's better to leave it to the local level, it's better to leave it to the private sector, it's better for it to happen with individuals and uh, nonprofits and churches. If that's your position, I also think that you have support in Scripture. I think you have support in Scripture either way. What I challenge you to do this morning is whichever side you lean toward, focus on the verses that, that say the opposite for once, you know. Because the, the first verses about helping the poor, those are the verses that are underlined in the Democrats' Bible. And then these verses about he who, who will not work shall not eat, those are underlined in the Republicans' Bible. And what, what I'd ask you to do this morning is underline the opposite verses for once. You know, focus on the other side of the coin. Um, personally, I, you didn't ask, but I'll just tell you anyway. Um, personally, I feel like it would be better, it would be ideal, best case scenario, if the government did less and the churches and nonprofits and individuals did more. But if that was going to work, the churches would have to do a lot more. Like, not like a little more, not like we chip in, a lot more. Because let's say that the churches would be more efficient. Let's say the churches would be 10 times as efficient as the government at accomplishing the same amount of work. You're still talking about billions and billions and billions of dollars. So if this really is going to be something that the church takes back, it's going to be a serious commitment. And by the way, I'll just say, why do you think the government got into this business in the first place? Um, I know what Republicans would say. They'd say it's to buy votes. Um, but, and those of you who are Republicans just outed yourself. Um, I don't think that's what it was originally. When you, when you have LBJ, you know, talking about this at first and realizing that he's going to lose the South for an entire generation if he does this. I think it's originally because of a true heart for the poor and because the churches weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. The churches were falling down on the job. Because if the churches were taking care of the poor, this wouldn't have become a public issue to begin with. It wouldn't have been a governmental issue to begin with. The churches are the ones that fell down on the job. And it's going to be, have to be the churches that lead the charge again if, if you ever want anything to change in that area. So who's to, to blame for the budget crisis? Not the Democrats, not the Republicans, Christians. Christians are to blame. This would, would have never been an issue of the federal budget to begin with if Christians had just done what they were supposed to do and listened to the Bible and followed the example set by Christ. So that's just for free. Um, but those are the first two points. Uh, it's important, it's non-optional, you have to do it. It's, there's a moral obligation, but then second, it's complicated. So third and finally, I want to shift gears here a little bit at the end. Uh, the third and, and last point of the sermon is not only is it non-optional and complicated, but it's also secondary. Helping the poor is secondary. Um, I think you could, you know, what I would hate is if you walked out of here thinking, well, the main thing to be a good Christian is to help the poor. That's what a good Christian's got to do. It's not the main thing. It's not the main thing at all. Or if you walked out of here thinking, 
um, you know, I, I really feel bad for the poor. You know, I, I really pity the poor. I, I really, um, you know, just wish that it weren't like this. Or, you know, I, I just feel so guilty and so bad and I pity them. And what I want to say in this last section is not only is it not the main thing, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't pity the poor. You shouldn't feel bad for them. You should help them. That's what we've been saying. But you don't need to pity them or feel bad for them. Uh, because Jesus says in, uh, in Luke chapter 6, this is uh, Luke's version of the, the Sermon on the Mount. He's, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. Happy are the poor. Lucky are the poor. If you're poor, you're lucky. Why? What's he talking about? He says, blessed are the poor because theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor because theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, the poor are lucky because they don't have much right now, but they have an inheritance, and that inheritance is the kingdom of God. And then conversely, he says elsewhere, the rich are in a tough spot. The rich are in a tough spot because it's very hard for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. The famous phrase he uses is, um, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. But blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor, for it's easy for them to inherit the kingdom of God. What's he talking about here? You know exactly what he's talking about. You know exactly what he's talking about. There's nothing esoteric or confusing about this. It's not a riddle. It's something you've thought yourself plenty of times, and you just didn't want to say it out loud, which is that religion is for poor people. Religion, Christianity, is for the lower classes. You wouldn't phrase it like that because that's offensive. You know, you don't. You know, you can't say stuff like that. But that's what you thought, isn't it? Isn't that what you thought? That that Christianity, that belief in God and the blood of Jesus Christ and all these weird things, that's for you know. There's people out there that are into that, but they're just not my kind of people. Um, it's kind of you think of it kind of like NASCAR. Like you know that there's like thousands of people that are into it. But you have no idea what they like about it. And they're just not your kind of people. And you see them as having kind of tastes that are somewhat less refined than yours. You know, you look down on them somewhat. That's That's how you feel about Christianity, isn't it? That Christianity is for poor people. And if that is how you feel... Uh, what I want to say in response to that is that's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's what Jesus says. He says Christianity is for poor people. And the reason is pretty obvious because what is what do you have to do? He says the poor are lucky because they're going to have an easier time inheriting the kingdom of God. What do you have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? What do you have to do to become a Christian? Not be good. That's middle class religion. That's this thing that middle class people have made up. Be good and God will like you. It's found nowhere in the Bible. Not be good, but what you have to do to really be a Christian, to really inherit the kingdom of God, is you have to come to God empty-handed, asking for a handout, and say, God, I've got nothing. I throw myself upon your mercy. That's easier for a poor person to do. They're used to that. They understand how that works. They know that if they're going to get anything worth getting, they're going to have to have help from the outside. Rich people, middle class people don't like that. They don't want to owe anybody anything. They want to do it on their own. They want to prove to everybody else that they've got what it takes. They don't want to ask anybody for help. They don't want to be indebted. Because, look, if, if you can get God to love you by being good, if you can get God to let you into his kingdom by being good, then guess what? God owes you. God owes you. You did what you were supposed to do, and now he owes you as a payment for all these good things that you did. But if it's not like that, and if it's instead 
that you don't have anything to offer God. You don't have anything that merits God's approval, but you have to come to him and just ask for his mercy. And he gives it to you as a free gift. Then you owe God. Then you owe God. You owe God your life. You owe God your allegiance. You owe God your praise. You owe God everything. You're in his debt. And rich people, middle class people, don't like that. They don't want anything to do with that. So that's why it's for the poor. It's for the poor. Or, fortunately... Um, in Matthew's version of the same sermon, Jesus, this, was a, this was like Jesus' stump speech. You know, he gave it many times. And uh, Matthew's version of it, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's hope. There's hope. Even if you have money, even if you have means, even if you've been given a lot, there's hope if you can find a way to become poor in spirit. To realize that spiritually you don't have anything to offer God and that, that you just have to ask for his grace as a handout. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not for the middle class in spirit. It's not for the rich in spirit. And so what they get, this is why you don't need to feel bad for them, what they get is the real thing. They get real faith, real religion, not the fake kind that middle class people make up where you have to be good and prove to God how great you are. The real thing. They get the real thing, and it changes their lives all over the city right now. In every borough, in in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, in the Bronx, in Queens, in all of the poorest neighborhoods right now, as we speak, in all of the poorest neighborhoods, in all of the worst facilities, there are hundreds of congregations meeting, making up thousands and thousands of people who are right now, right at this very moment, who are right now jumping up and down and shouting and clapping their hands and singing in every language on earth, Because Jesus Christ died for their sins and rose again for their redemption. Did you even know that that's happening? Did you even know that that's happening? You thought everybody besides you was at brunch right now. You thought everybody besides you was out drinking mimosas and Bloody Marys. Because that's what everybody you know does. (laughs) And this is how the other half lives. This is how the other half lives. And they've got something that you don't. You know, they've got something a lot better than mimosas and Bloody Marys. They've got God. So don't pity them. It's they that pity you. You who are too rich and too smart and too educated and too self-sufficient to believe the one thing that could really save you in the end. Who is it that's unfortunate? Let's pray. Father, we know that we can trick ourselves sometimes into thinking that everything we have is a product of our own hard work. And uh, you know that we've worked hard, God. You you see our effort. But um, we also want to confess to you that we deceive ourselves and that a lot of people work hard. A lot of people work just as hard as we do and don't have nearly as much as we have. So, God, we confess to you our pride this morning, and we confess to you the hard-heartedness we've had toward those who have less, and the lies we've told ourselves about that they deserve less for some reason. We ask that you would show us how to help the poor wisely, that you would show us how to, to get down into the nitty-gritty and to do the tough work of, of navigating all these complications 
that make it so tricky and that we would not do it unthinkingly, that we would not do it just to make ourselves feel better, but that we would take the time and the effort and the trouble to find something that really works. But God, more important than that, um, we confess to you that our abundance of material wealth has colored the way we see the world such that we, we think spiritually we have something to offer to. We think spiritually we have merit. We don't think we need to be forgiven for our sins. We don't think we've offended you. We don't think we need your mercy. We were too proud to even believe in you. God, I ask that you would come and give us a poverty of spirit this morning. I ask that you would come and break down this facade of wealth and help us to see that we're poor in spirit so that we can inherit your kingdom. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.